0: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina has hundreds of pet food recipes that are made without artificial flavors or preservatives and is striving for 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025 so that they can help make the world a better place. Learn more at purina.com cares.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey, young. Here's Louisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi,
2: this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington
1: Post. It's Lori Aratani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 20th. Today, aggressive and unwelcome policing by federal law enforcement in Portland, and remembering an original freedom fighter.
3: This started with you know, the killing of George Floyd. My name is Christopher David, I go by Chris. I'm uh, 53 years old and I live here in Portland, Oregon. Basically, there's been a long history in this city of unwarranted police brutality on the part of the Portland police. It has targeted members of the black
2: community. So Portland has had a different pattern of protests than a lot of the other parts of the country since the death of George Floyd. If you remember what happened in so many cities right after his death, there were very intense protests, they got bigger for a while, and there was, in in a lot of cities, some degree of property destruction and, and conflicts, confrontations between protesters and police. But then at some point, a lot of those confrontations calmed down and petered out and it went back to smaller, more peaceful marches. Portland has been different. My name is Devlin Barrett. I'm a reporter with The Washington Post where I cover uh, the Justice Department and the FBI. What happened in Portland, and it's partly because Portland has a different history of protest and a different relationship between protesters and police, is that in Portland what you began to see is regular nightly confrontations between a a relatively small group of very determined and very sort of uh, committed protesters slash people who were trying to graffiti things and, and shoot fireworks at the courthouse buildings.
0: Over the last few weeks, the federal presence has really ramped up in the city. The Department of Homeland Security has sent a whole troop of agents to reinforce the troops that were already here and to, quote unquote, restore order to the city after weeks and weeks of protests that the Trump administration felt was escalating out of control of local officials. My name is Marissa Lang, and I cover protests and activism for The Washington Post. I'm in Portland, Oregon, where protests have been going on for more than 50 days straight. There have been about two dozen people arrested since July 4th in the vicinity of the federal courthouse in Portland, which is downtown and has been at the center of many of these demonstrations. Teams of unidentified federal agents were also caught on video grabbing protesters off of Portland streets and throwing them into unmarked minivans. What are you doing? I haven't what is going on? We need to know who, who are you? Are you? Who are you NLG in? will get it's you time out. Time. What's your, What's your Tell name? Tell us your name.
4: You just violated their rights.
2: Oh,
1: kidnapping
4: people. You just oh. violated their rights.
0: This caught the attention of people all around the country and really incensed local officials and protesters here because the agents were not wearing any identifying information. You couldn't tell who they were. Some protesters said they weren't even sure they were law enforcement. They thought that perhaps they were a militia group or some other extremist organization because they jumped out of a minivan wearing fatigues grabbed protesters off of city streets which is not federal property and then put them in the back of a car many portlanders that i've spoken to said that that incident has encouraged them to come back out that those who maybe stepped back from the protests for a while are now returning to the streets because they are so angry at the federal crackdown and they feel compelled to be out there and stand against it
3: they're gassing moms, they're, they're beating vets, they're, it's indiscriminate. I got up very, very close to these folks, I did, obviously, close enough that they could beat me. Right? We're out there. Just You know, the night that I got beat up, I spent an hour and a half listening to doctors from OHSU, Oregon Health Sciences University, talk about their experiences with treating protesters that had been gassed and beaten.
2: What you have is a federal government, the Trump administration, arguing that what Portland really needs is for law enforcement to get tough on the protesters and city officials, Democrats, arguing what Portland really needs is for the federal officials to stop sending in more personnel and military gear and, and you know all these rifles and just try to calm the situation.
1: So in some ways, it seems like this is turning into a conflict, not just between protesters and law enforcement or even protesters in the federal government, but city officials and the federal government with these city officials saying, what are you doing? Like, why are you here in our city? And why are you responding to these protests in this
2: really aggressive, scary way? Very much so. The relationship between the Trump administration and the Portland city government could not be worse right now. And it creates a whole other level of difficulty in terms of trying to get a handle on what's happening in Portland every night.
1: And I'm curious what you think are the implications of this, of, of the fact that protesters at least say that they that these law enforcement agents are not identifiable. And at least from an optics perspective, it seems like something kind of like secret police.
2: So a couple things. One, it's very, very common for police to, in any place, in any jurisdiction to use unmarked vehicles. I, I don't think really unmarked vehicles really means very much in the form of police work, or if it does, then we would have to start changing policies all around the country. But the larger, more troubling thing, I think, for a lot of even law enforcement officials themselves is this notion that people are essentially being arrested without any sort of identifier of who is doing the arresting. We see a sort of repeat a sort of echo of what happened in Washington D.C. in some of the protests if you remember there was a lot of consternation about the notion that there's just heavily armed men in military garb working for unidentified federal law enforcement agencies standing around on the street here we're seeing something slightly different which is you know people actually grabbing guys and taking them into custody But the same the same basic disagreement exists in both instances, which is that the federal government says, no, no, these guys are identifying themselves. And the people on the street are saying, no, actually, they're not. And so you have a disagreement of basic facts here that I think is part of the problem. And I will say in the one video that became fairly widely shared of this, you can't see on the video who those guys work for. That doesn't mean there wasn't an insignia somewhere on them. But remember, a lot of this is happening in the dark, and a lot of people are wearing masks both for, you know, sort of health reasons and just, you know, confrontation reasons. Mm -hmm. And so this all gets much more complicated much more quickly because people don't really know in in the heat of the moment sometimes what's actually happening.
1: Hmm. So when it comes to this larger question that city officials are raising of why is the federal government even here? Why are they staking their turf when it comes to these protests? What does the Trump administration say in response to that about why it's so important for them to be confronting these protesters in this way?
2: What the president has said and what his uh, members of his administration have said is that if city governments, and they tend to call them Democrat city governments, liberal city governments, aren't willing to enforce the rule of law on city streets, then the federal government has to do it for them. That's the Trump administration's argument. Chad Wolf, the acting secretary for Homeland Security, went to Portland last week And he basically threw down the gauntlet. In an interview with Fox News, he said. So earlier this week,
3: I called not only the mayor, but the governor. Uh, I offered DHS support to help them locally address the situation that's going on in Portland. Uh, And their only response was, please pack up and go home. Uh, And that's just not going to happen on my watch. So we need to make sure that we're supporting our law enforcement officers here. Uh, and making sure that they're going to continue to protect the federal courthouse here. That's what the DHS does. Uh, that's our mission. We're not going to advocate our mission, our responsibilities. Uh, however, whatever the local leadership here is telling us, we're going to do our job. Uh, we're going to do it professionally, uh, but we're not going to have these violent anarchists uh, who show up about the same time every night uh, for a, a series of hours and uh, having that federal destruction to property.
2: And we're not going to do what the Portland officials have asked, which is to send, send these guys home. The pushback has been from local city officials is the federal agents are making it worse. The federal agents are so confrontational and so aggressive that we're seeing more of these confrontations, not less. And if the point is to see less of these confrontations, then the federal agents should leave. Now, what you saw over this last weekend was that more and more people were coming out on the street to protest so it'll be interesting to see what lesson the trump administration takes from that if any because some folks in the administration are arguing that well this should be our model in any city that has you know significant protests and significant graffiti and significant confrontations between police and protesters and it will be interesting to see if the trump administration really does attempt to bring sort of the Portland version of federal law enforcement to other cities.
1: Because at least from what you're describing, it sounds like the federal law enforcement presence there is actually making things worse and inciting more people to come out. And it feels like it's pretty counter to whatever you would think the federal government's end goal is.
2: Well, so certainly that's the argument being made by Portland city officials but also, you know, one of the big arguments that's that's happened since all of these protests over the George Floyd killing began is what is the best way to deal with mass unrest in the street? Is it to, you know, sort of the, the Trump administration model of lock it down, you know, hammer home the message as as hard as you need to? that that lawlessness or graffiti or property destruction just simply will not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form? Or is it to seek to reduce confrontation and conflict as much as possible so that there's just fewer people in the street and and there's less anger in the street? That is the debate that's happening all around the country to different degrees, but especially in Portland.
1: Devlin Barrett covers national security and law enforcement for The Post. Marissa Lang covers activism and protests for The Post. Congressman John Lewis of Georgia died on Friday after a battle with pancreatic cancer. He was 80 years old. We talked to opinion writer Jonathan Capehart about John Lewis's legacy.
5: The America John Lewis grew up in was unequal, segregated, where the state and the nation viewed him and his family and African-Americans in general as second-class citizens, not worthy of the protections provided to them as American citizens in the Constitution.
4: I remember in... 1956, when I was 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins going down to the public library in a little town of Troy, Alabama, trying to get library cards. And we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only and not for coloreds. But it was a public library. It should have been open to all citizens. My father, my mother, my grandparents, and great-grandparents paid taxes to support the public library. But we could not use it. We couldn't get a library card. We couldn't check our books. But it was an ongoing struggle to make the fulfillment of the Constitution become real. John Lewis wanted to go
5: to Troy University in Troy, Alabama, but it was segregated. And he had heard Martin Luther King on the radio. And so he wrote Dr. King a letter saying that, you know, I'm John Lewis and I want to go to Troy University and I can't go because they won't let me, paraphrasing here. What he got in response was a letter from Martin Luther King that was in the form of a round-trip bus ticket to Montgomery, Alabama. And John Lewis went to Montgomery, went to the church that was pastored by Ralph Abernathy, who is a giant in the civil rights movement, Dr. King's best friend. And so that's how it started. John Lewis says that Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks saved his life because they showed him how to get into trouble, good trouble.
4: I met Martin Luther King Jr. I was inspired to get in the movement and they inspired me to get in what I call good trouble. To get in the sit-ins, the freedom rides, to go on the marches, to walk across that bridge. And I've been just trying to help out from the time that I was very young, to make a contribution to help end racial discrimination in our country.
5: John Lewis, in that time, in the 50s, in the 60s, was viewed as a rebel. He tried to integrate lunch counters. And if you've seen the videos of what happened to people who tried to integrate lunch counters, you could see that it was something that the local gentry did not appreciate because they would pour milkshakes and ketchup and mustard and all sorts of things on people who were trying to integrate lunch counters. A more pleasant, if you want to view it that way, moment was when John Lewis spoke at the 1963 March on Washington. He was the youngest person to speak that day.
4: I have the pleasure to present to this great audience, young John Lewis, National Chairman, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Brother John Lewis. We march today for jobs and freedom, but we have
5: nothing to be proud of.
3: Hundreds
4: and thousands of our brothers are not here.
5: And then two years later, leading a march of some 600 people from Brown Chapel in Selma, Alabama, over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Once they got to the other side of the bridge, they were met by law enforcement in riot gear, Alabama state troopers, Alabama state troopers on horseback, all with nightsticks. By law enforcement, he is clubbed in the head so hard his skull is fractured. Those are the things that John Lewis did and took part in that made him an icon, that made him a conscience of the Congress as he was known. And also, it was an activism that
4: never left him. I had the feeling from listening to speeches or reading books that we had everything in the Constitution. We just had to make it whole. We had to interpret the essence of the Constitution. So we wanted America. We wanted America. We wanted our people to live up to the spirit. The Constitution. I interviewed
5: Congressman Lewis last month about the new documentary, John Lewis Good Trouble, that chronicles his life from before he was a civil rights participant and leader and icon through the present day. The timing of the release of that documentary could not have been more fortuitous in that the nation was primed to hear the story of John Lewis. The nation was traumatized. They had watched a Black man die before their eyes over eight minutes and 46 excruciating seconds. They heard him plea for his life, call out for his mother, saying, I can't breathe, with the knee of a white police officer on his neck. For someone like John Lewis, that moment was a continuation of the fight that he began six decades earlier. But in talking to him, he was not someone who viewed the renewed activism from a point of despair. He viewed it as a continuation of the work. He knew how hard it was to achieve the gains that he and other civil rights leaders and um, non-leaders were able to achieve. He said that he was moved by the activism and the taking to the streets
4: that he witnessed. I've been deeply moved and inspired by seeing the hundreds and thousands of citizens getting involved in peaceful, non-violent protests to dramatize the issue that we must stop allowing people to become the victim of police violence.
5: You know, I stood with him on top of a building that overlooked Black Lives Matter Plaza, and he stood there silently looking down at the street below. And I watched him and wondered what must he be thinking? This man who represents a sweep of American history, and how the trauma and activism that launched him to the career that he, in the life, he got to lead, now looking down on something that represents the
4: fight that he undertook was not finished. He must be able to and prepare to give until you cannot give anymore. We must use our time and our space on this little planet that we call Earth to make a lasting contribution, to leave it a little better than we found it. And now that need is greater than ever before.
5: And that was John Lewis. He kept pushing and fighting until the very last day.
1: Jonathan Capehart is an opinions writer for The Post and host of the Cape Up podcast. The clips of John Lewis you heard were from that podcast and from Constitutional, hosted by Lillian Cunningham. You can find links to both of those podcasts at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We are still doing our audience survey, and we want to know what you think, not just about Post Reports, but some of our other great podcasts. Tell us what you listen to and why. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. You'll also find a link in the show notes for today's episode at PostReports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.